that truth is local and personal, then everybody has a different idea of what justice is. Everybody has a different idea of what they deserve, especially in a culture of entitlement like we live in today. What someone deserves today, everyone has a different idea of what it is. But God, because he's true, what God sees as just giving someone what they deserve is actually the true standard for justice. Whose standard are you basing your scale of justice on? Is it God's or the world's? In today's message, Pastor Daniel will describe the difference between the two, point out why God's form of justice is the only purely perfect system. People in the world judge others based on what they know and what they perceive to be true. God, he sees it all. Instead of falling into step with people around you, let God dictate how you treat others. Now, here's Pastor Daniel in Romans chapter 3 as he begins his message, It's That Bad. So we're calling this series Life in Tension because whether we like it or not, there are just areas of tension in life. It's doesn't help it if we pretend like there's not areas of tension. It actually, the best thing we can do is acknowledge the tension and then not only acknowledge the tension, but I think we have to learn how to manage the tension. A lot of us, we just want to resolve tension, but oftentimes the tensions exist for good reason. And when you try and resolve a tension, you actually end up with another issue that creates another set of tension. So, so much of life is about learning how to manage tension. Now, one of the greatest areas of tension when I think about life is when we're trying to complete something. Now, if you ever studied project management, I know everyone's excited to talk about project management here on a Sunday morning here at Crossroads, but there's a principle that's called the 90-10 principle. And it goes something like this, that any project, you get 90% of the job done in the first 10% of the time. It actually takes 90% of the time to get the last 10% done. Everyone has found that to be true in their life, right? Like you do a project and it's like, man, you're just like just totally nailing the project, killing it all. And then all of a sudden you hit a point where it's 90% done. And to get that last 10% done, it's really hard, isn't it? Maybe partially it's because we know it's almost there. Like we're at the end and we just don't have the gumption or the perseverance to follow through. Or there was all sorts of things that you knew might come up, but you didn't really plan for it. And so it takes you forever to get that last 10% done. Well, not only is that true in project management, it's also true in relationships with people. There's a thing that we talk about on our staff here at Crossroads. And really what we realize is that whenever you're dealing with something, you're dealing with a situation with somebody, you never completely fix the situation because for most of us, we leave out the last 10%. Do you know how that is? It's like you have a disagreement with somebody, you're working it out, and you get it to a point, but you actually don't want to give them the last 10% because you're scared. If I actually share this with them, it might break the relationship. So you get the job done, but you really don't get it done. It's resolved, but the last 10% is unresolved. Does everyone know what I'm talking about? Yeah, it's a scary thing. Now, one of the things that we do is, as a staff, we always ask, can I give you the last 10%? 
Now, we always ask it as a question because when someone in a meeting says, can I give you the last 10%, you're actually asking for an invitation to share. These are the things that I actually don't want to share with you, but I think you really need to know, and we won't actually fix this unless we get this thing done. Now, what's amazing is I tell our staff, and I'll tell you, because the last, can I give you the last 10%? This is a great tool to fix issues in your life. But you always have to ask for permission. And if someone says no, you should honor their no. Because if someone says to me, can I give you the last 10%? I have to be willing to let them go there. And if someone, if you just take the last 10%, I guarantee you're going to break the relationship. Because they're actually, they're, they're not ready for it. So you actually have to ask for permission. So if you want to give someone the, 10%, the last 10%, say, hey, can I give you the last 10%? And if they say yes, then you can say, okay. And then you talk about it. But if they say no, you should honor their no. And maybe they'll come back to you at a later date. Now, the reason I bring this up is because we're in a section in our series in Life Intention where the Apostle Paul is unpacking what we could consider the reason why everybody needs to know Jesus. Why is Jesus good news? But the thing is, is because the Apostle Paul is writing a letter, he can't actually ask if he can give the last 10%, so he just gives it. Does that make sense? Like, you know, he's writing a letter, so he can't be like, hey, listen, there's something else I want to share with you, but are you okay if I share this? I want to give you the last 10%. And then the people in Rome write back, oh, yeah, Paul, can you write? No, he just gives it. And so in a lot of ways today, you're going to get the last 10% of what's wrong with humanity, whether you like it or not. Now, the reason I say that is if you're not, if you're in a place right now where you're like, hey, Fusco, I'm really not in the mood for the last 10% today, then there's the door. And we have some great coffee in our family room. If that's what you want, you know what I mean? But the Apostle Paul doesn't ask for permission. He just kind of goes there. And so because he just goes there, as a Bible teacher, my job is just to go there with the Apostle Paul and with you all. Does that make sense? So open up in your Bibles to Romans chapter 3. Romans chapter 3, verses 1 to 20. I've called this message, it's that bad. Okay? I've called it, it's that bad. Now, really what's been going on, to put the whole thing in context, this message now, it's like, this is the final piece that the Apostle Paul needs to put in place, because he explained what the gospel is, and it's good news. But then he had to explain, like, well, why is Jesus good news? Why does Jesus need to come? Why do we need salvation in his name? And the Apostle Paul, first he begins with all of humanity, the end of Romans chapter 1, and he explains what's wrong with people, and we find out that we're the problem. Society is the problem. Us as individuals are the problem. And then he moves into the next category of people who aren't doing all those bad things, but look down on the people who are. And then he explains the fact that, hey, listen, if you're judging people who are doing things that you think are wrong, actually, you're just as bad as they are. And he goes through this whole thing. And then at the end of Romans chapter two, he lands us on Jewish people because Paul was Jewish. And he's like, well, not only is there just unrighteous people and then there's moral unbelievers, but then what about the Jewish people? And then he unpacks the fact that for the Jewish people, even though they were Jewish and they had the sign of the covenant and the law, they weren't keeping it anyway. And so now as we move into Romans chapter 3, verses 1 to 20, he's going to give the last 10%. He's going to like, okay, I'm just going to put all this thing out there now. And this is the last step. And I want you to notice in Romans 3, verse 21, this is not, we're not going to see this today. But notice it says, but now. Now I like to call this the glorious butts of the Bible. Now I don't understand why everyone laughs when I say the glorious butts of the Bible. 
I don't know what you're thinking about. I'm just using the word bud as a contrasting word, right? And the idea here is it's like he gets all the way to the end once we land on, on verse 20 and then but now and then he shifts now to the solution. But in order to give us the proper prescription, he needs to unpack completely the diagnosis. And so the last 10% for the Apostle Paul is the final understanding of what the diagnosis is. And I would say the diagnosis is it's that bad. Now notice what it says in Romans 3 verse 1. It says, what advantage then has the Jew and what is the profit of circumcision? Much in every way, chiefly because to them were committed the oracles of God. For what if some did not believe? Will their unbelief make the faithfulness of God without effect? Certainly not. Indeed, let God be true and every man a liar, as it is written, that you may be justified in your words and may overcome when you are judged. But if our unrighteousness demonstrates the righteousness of God... What shall we say then? Is God unjust who inflicts wrath? I speak as a man. Certainly not. For then, how will God judge the world? For if the truth of God has increased through my lie to his glory, why am I still judged as a sinner? And why not say, let us do evil that good may come, as we are slanderously reported, and as some affirm that we say, their condemnation is just. Now, the Apostle Paul is using a great teaching tactic here. Really what he's doing is he's having an argument with somebody, but they're really, it's like a faux argument. Like he's, he's playing two sides of it. He's, he's saying something and then he's like, well, this would be someone's issue with what I'm saying. And so he's having an argument on paper with himself, but with someone who would disagree with him. And so really what Paul is doing is he's asking what is primarily three big questions. And there's a couple of sub-questions in there. Now, if you notice the first question, you get it in verse 1. It says, what advantage then? Actually, before I give you the questions, let me give you the principle. Let's do it that way. Let me give you the big idea, and then we'll show you the questions and how they fit in. The principle is this, is that God is true and just. God is true And God is just. Now, I get that God is true, of course, from verse 4. Let God be true and every man a liar. And then in verse 7, if for if the truth of God. So God is true. And then the idea God is just, I get from verse 5. Is God unjust who inflicts wrath? And then Paul answers, certainly not. Does that make sense? And then, of course... When you get to the end of verse 8, it says, their condemnation is just. So really what he's saying here is that God's judgment is both true and just. God is right in what he's doing. And because God is true, then God's scales of justice are honest. I mean, you think about what the truth is. The truth is all that pertains to what is absolutely verifiably and universally true. But justice is, and when we think about what justice is, justice is when somebody gets what they deserve. Now, you know what the problem is when you speak of justice today is because we live in a world that thinks that truth is local and personal, then everybody has a different idea of what justice is. Everybody has a different idea of what they deserve, especially in a culture of entitlement like we live in today. What someone deserves today, everyone has a different idea of what it is. But God, because he's true, 
What God sees as just giving someone what they deserve is actually the true standard for justice, not just what everyone thinks. Now, really what's going on here is Paul wants to put the final step for the Jewish person on why them trusting in their Judaism in the law or in circumcision, which was the sign of the covenant that God gave to Abraham, why that was not enough, right? He wanted to make sure that they understood it. So verse one, the first question, what advantage then has the Jew or what is the profit of circumcision? Both of those questions relate us back to Romans chapter two. The question is uh, what advantage then has the Jew? That's verses 17 to 24. And what profit is circumcision. That's verses 25 to 29. So he's going now, because of what he said before, he said, so what advantage then has the person who's Jewish or the person who has circumcision? He says, much in every way, because to them were committed the oracles of God. He's saying, listen, what advantage? Tons of advantage. Because you grew up being recipients of the word of God. Now, think about this for a second. See, for the Jewish people, the fact that they were the recipients of the word of God was a great benefit, a great advantage, but it was not salvific. Now, write that word down, salvific. Go ahead. It's the word salvation as an adjective. If you play words with friends or if you're old school and you play Scrabble, you'll get some points for this word. So I'm just trying to help you on your games. I know you guys are going for it. So it's a real word. Some of you are going to look it up. You're like, he wasn't lying. It's in the dictionary wherever you find it online because everything you find online is true. No, just kidding. (laughs) But the idea is, it's like you could ask yourself, for being a Jewish person, what good is it? If you tell me having the law doesn't save me and being circumcised, why is this a good thing? And he's saying it's super good that you got the law. But it doesn't save you. Now, here's the thing. When you look at your background, for many of us, this is the big problem that we have. When we look at our past, oftentimes we don't see all the benefits being raised in the time you were raised by the people you were raised are. I remember when I was younger, when I was at the bright age of about 18, the only thing I thought about my parents were they don't have a clue. Right? And, and that's how it goes. Like, at this point, like I'm so much smarter than my parents. Some of you are there right now. You know what I mean? Just think my parents don't have a clue. But then all of a sudden, when I hit about 23, I thought to myself, hey, my parents got a couple things that I didn't quite understand, right? So it's amazing that they had no clue. Then I'm 23, and I'm like, hey, they kind of had it together. And then by the time I had kids, my parents were coming out of my face. I didn't realize that they were like living in there, like little gremlins, you know what I mean? And I have kids, and my parents come out of my face. And you realize, oh, wait a second, maybe they weren't... As ignorant as I thought, right? The reason I bring this up is because you can see for many of us, when you look at our history, you know, you have a tendency to want to throw out everything. But what I would tell you is that there were great advantages if you're willing to go there with the way that you're raised. Listen, we were all raised by imperfect parents. I talk to my kids about this a lot. I mean, Obadiah and Maranatha, Obadiah is 13 and Maranatha is 10. See, they're at that age now where my wife, Lynn, and, and my faith can't keep Obadiah and Maranatha. Like, even though they're younger, they live in our home, but like when they're out at school, when they're with their friends, it's like, I'm not there hovering over them. And so they have to make their faith their own, right? And I talk to them about that because it'd be very easy for them to say when they get older, it's so not okay. I mean, I was raised by, you know, my dad's a pastor and my mom loves Jesus and, you know, and and I wish my parents weren't so strict and because we have those discussions where something will go on. And my kids are like, well, so-and-so is doing that. I'm like, well, you don't have so-and-so's last name. That's between them and their parents. But in our house, this is what we do. Now, 
very easily my kids could at some point be like, it's, what advantage was it to have two Christian parents, right? But the thing is, is that if you're willing to look at it, all of us received a lot of benefit from the situation we have, even the worst situations. Because you learn certain things. Like I look at now, my mother's birthday would have been this past week. My mother would have turned 71 years old. And my mother passed away when I was 49, right? When she was 49, so I was 21, right? Sorry, I got that backwards. I'm not 49 yet, at least not the last time I checked. And I could very easily say, you know, so what good is this? You know, like my mom's been gone half my life. But when I look back on it, some of the things that I learned through losing my mom was a great advantage. I don't have the tendency to think that everyone's going to have forever. So I want to make sure I maximize the time I have. See, it's important that we learn how to see the advantage of what we have. But here's the thing. Whatever advantage you got from the way you were raised, it's not salvific either. See, for my kids, they're growing up understanding the scriptures. Knowing what it's like to see two people do their best to walk with Jesus. But that doesn't mean that they're going to be followers of Jesus. They have to choose it for themselves. See, the thing is, is you could be here at Crossroads, and being here at Crossroads doesn't make you a Christian. Just because you attend a Bible-teaching church doesn't make you born again. And so you have to make sure that you embrace the advantage of what you learn, however you do that. But there's only one way to be saved, and that's through Jesus. See, and that's what he's saying here. He's saying, listen, he's like, it's much benefit here, but not salvific. You got the word of God. That's a good thing. But you're not living it out, and that's your problem. So he starts with that first question. Then he moves into the next question, verse 3. For what if some did not believe? Will their unbelief make the faithfulness of God without effect? Certainly not. Indeed, let God be true and let every man a liar, as it is written, that you may be justified in your words and you may overcome when you are judged. See, the next question is is like, well, for some Jewish people who don't believe, if they are not believing, then does that make God's faithfulness without effect? He's saying, if the Jewish people who had the word of God didn't believe, then is God really faithful? And then notice what he says. He says, certainly not. Of course God is still faithful. Indeed, let God be true and every person a liar. He's saying, listen, that no matter what people do who have the advantage of receiving the word of God, God is still faithful. And even if everybody else is wrong, God is still true. And so it's a great reminder because Paul takes Romans 9 and 10 and 11 to discuss, well, what about the Jewish people who were given the covenants and given the law who don't believe? And so Paul will use three chapters to unpack when people are unfaithful. What does that mean about God's faithfulness? Now, I know you all can't wait to get to Romans 9, 10, and 11. We'll get there in about 47 years. But you can read ahead if you want to. It's right there in your Bibles between Romans 8 and Romans 12. You can find those three chapters. And then, of course, he quotes Psalm 51, verse 4. Let God be true and every man a liar, as it is written, that you may be justified in your words and may overcome when you are judged. He's saying, listen, no matter if everyone else is lying, if everyone else is unfaithful, God is still true. Now, I love it to say it this way, that God is good even when no one else is. And our hope, your hope and my hope in this generation is not that everyone else is fine, but we know the one person who is fine, the one person who is true. Everyone else may be a liar. Everyone else may be a swindler and a cheat, but we know one person who isn't, and that's the good God that we, who created us and who sustains us and who we follow after every single day. For too many of us, we're so busy looking at people and people are shady that we're getting shady, and that's not the way it's supposed to work. You look at a good God who is light with no shadow of turning, and you be the one person who isn't shady in a world that's totally shaded over. Because we let God be true and we let every man be a liar. 
And then, of course, the, the, the third question, verse 5, but if our unrighteousness demonstrates the righteousness of God, what shall we say? Is God unjust who inflicts wrath? Certainly not. For then how will God judge the world? For if the truth of God has increased through my life to his glory, why am I still judged as a sinner? Now, this is an interesting one. If you've ever shared your faith with someone who doesn't believe, you'll hear this. Like, well, okay, so if the good news is that I'm a sinner and my sinner shows God's righteousness by sending Jesus, then actually I'm important to God as a sinner. So it's like, why is God so hard on me? Because he actually needs me to be unrighteous so we can see how glorious he is. You don't ever think about it that way, but Paul's bringing this up. He's like, someone could say, hey, listen, if God is glorified because I'm unrighteous, then why is God so mean? I mean, I'm a player in this. Like, so why is God, why is he so rough on me? So really they're starting to question God's justice or God's justness because really what's going on is they're saying God should give me a free pass because he actually needs me to be unrighteous so he can show how righteous he is. Right, And it's kind of an interesting argument that someone says, but he says, of course not. And then he goes on and it says this in verse 8, and why not say, let us do evil that good may come, as we are slanderously reported as some affirm that we say their condemnation is just. Now this is important, because he's breaking open a position. Now I'm going to give you a big word here, and I want you to write it down, because you can tweet it out and impress your friends. The word is antinomianism. Go ahead, write it down. Sound it out. You'll get it wrong anyway. <laughs> antinomianism. Anti means against. Namos in the Greek means law. And of course, ism is an ism. Right? So the position is that because I am saved by God's grace, I can do whatever I want. And when I do whatever I want, my unrighteousness is now declared righteous, and so I can do whatever I want because I'm saved by grace. Now, here's the thing. Some of you, that's how you're living right now. You say, I believe in Jesus, but you don't actually live like you believe in Jesus. You figure, I can do whatever I want because I'm saved, and God forgives me. And I'm here to tell you, if that's what you believe, you're not a Christian. You're not a Christian. Because it means you don't even understand the grace of God. Because nobody who believes and loves Jesus is content to live like Jesus isn't real. And so we live in a day and age, Dietrich Bonhoeffer calls it cheap grace. It's the idea that I can live however I want to live, and because I'm a Christian, it doesn't matter because I'm forgiven anyway. And I'm here to tell you, if that's your position, you're not a Christian. Because when you realize the weightiness of the cross, it has to change your life. See, we are not saved by what we do, but once we're saved, our faith in Jesus changes the way that we live. Now, I'm not saying that any of us are justified by our changed life, but if the fact that you believe in Jesus doesn't cause you to pause for a second and say, I probably shouldn't live like that. Jesus is Pastor Daniel's teaching today may have left you questioning what your status as a Christian really is. He gave some key questions to ask yourself, however, in order to determine the answer for yourself. Are you walking away from temptations of sin? Are you doing what God has asked in his word? If that's the case, then you're considered a Christian, a disciple of Jesus. Keep following him and seeking to grow closer to him. 
Jesus is Real Radio is the radio ministry of Daniel Fusco of Crossroads Community Church. The messages that you hear each day here on Jesus is Real Radio were produced from messages that Pastor Daniel shared on Sunday mornings and the midweek study. It's our prayer that this teaching from God's Word blessed and encouraged you in your walk with Jesus Christ. Thanks for joining us today for Jesus is Real Radio. Hey, I wanted to remind you that each day on Facebook, Pastor Daniel shares a simple two-minute message. In this message, Pastor Daniel draws out an important biblical truth really helps set your day on the right path. So be sure to follow Pastor Daniel Fusco on Facebook and share these two-minute messages with your friends and family. Next time on Jesus Is Real Radio, Pastor Daniel will remind you with scripture to back him up that you are a sinner. There's just no way to deny it. Don't worry, though. You're not alone. All have sinned, but all have been given the chance to be renewed and have their sins forgiven. That includes you. Even if you've already given your life to Jesus, you still need him each and every day. So don't hesitate to turn to him regularly. You've been listening to Jesus is Real Radio with Pastor Daniel Fusco of Crossroads Community Church. Pastor Daniel will continue teaching through this series, Life Intention. Until then, may God bless.